We're at an amazing hinge point in the scale of data that are available. We are able to get down to 30 meter resolution in most of the predictor layers. That's unprecedented in the history of doing modeling across the United States. But there's also shoebox satellites in space right now that are taking photographs at meter resolution across the planet. So there will be finer scale data available and for certain species that will be important. But 30 meter resolution, the resolution we're working at right now, is really quite good when you're talking about large-scale protection. Welcome to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. I'm Sarah Powell from Esri, and I'll be your host for today. You just heard Sean O'Brien, President and CEO at NatureServe, refer to the importance and abundance of data and analytics in driving decision-making in large-scale conservation efforts. NatureServe operates as the hub of an international network that educates businesses and governments on sustainable practices. Here, Esri Director of Conservation Solutions, David Gadsden, investigate the methods NatureServe uses to better understand and help protect the world's most vulnerable species and habitats. Sean, thank you for joining me today. I'm happy to be here, David. Thank you. So for over 40 years, NatureServe has been the leading source of information on rare and endangered species, threatened ecosystems around the world. You joined Nature Service President and CEO in 2018, but you've been working professionally on environmental topics for more than 20 years. How has the conservation landscape shifted uh, over the course of your career? What's amazing to see the change the technology has made in our ability to pursue conservation topics and protecting biodiversity. When I was in graduate school, Analyzing a database that was 30 megabytes was a challenge, and you had to write custom code to do the statistics on it. You know, when you told people you were working with a database of that size, they sort of didn't know how to respond. And now, 30 megabyte databases, you're just getting started. And NatureServe is now operating with terabytes worth of data that goes back 40 plus years in all 50 states and all the Canadian provinces and territories at excruciating detail. And we're able to analyze it on the desktop and in the cloud in ways that weren't even conceived of 20, 30 years ago. And our ability to pinpoint places to protect as a result is magnified many times. Can you help us understand how NatureServe got into this role over that 40-year history? How did you establish these relationships as that sort of national curator and aggregator of this important information. One of the things that's hard to conceptualize in today's political environment is how different it was in the 70s. So the 1970s, Richard Nixon's president, and we have the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act, and we create the EPA under Richard Nixon. We also have the Endangered Species Act, and essentially no way to implement the Endangered Species Act. So there's this idea that we're going to protect endangered species but the government doesn't set up a system to figure out which ones those are. And so the Nature Conservancy at the time created natural heritage programs in all of the states and eventually all of the provinces from the Nature Conservancy to collect all of this data on threatened and endangered species so that we could actually do the analysis to see if something was to be taken off of the list, to be delisted. And that ability to pull that off was sort of a singular moment in time when people were not as cynical about politics, but people were thinking in a bipartisan way about protecting the environment. 
So one of the things that NatureServe talks about is biodiversity being the foundation of life. Can you help us explain that? What's the importance of, of diversity of life on Earth? We are part of the biodiversity of this planet, and it's an integrated system. We know that now. We do not stand apart from the rest of the biota and the rest of the chemistry and physics of the planet. We depend on biodiversity for all of our food. Everything we eat is a plant or an animal, and the diversity of things that we eat depends on biodiversity. And we're in danger now of monoculturing where our resources come from so that if we had the equivalent of a chestnut blight but on corn, just think what that would do to the U.S. food supply and the U.S. economy, much less the rest of the world. Right? So having other varieties of corn, crop wild varieties as they're called, available in case we need to do some interbreeding later or we need to switch is super important. And the interconnectedness that we're discovering, particularly in the soils in forests, in the way trees may be communicating with one another and sharing resources through the mycelial network in the forest. These are the kinds of things that we didn't know about not that many years ago. There's now evidence that there's electrical conductivity among fungus in the soils. Before Thomas Edison, nature was conducting electricity through the ground. We have the opportunity to learn from nature, right? We've all heard that spider webs are stronger than Kevlar. We still don't know how to do that, but nature figured that out. So we have an amazing amount to still learn from nature, and we're completely dependent on it for our lives and for actually even existing. What is the sixth extinction? The sixth extinction is essentially what we're in right now, but we don't really feel on a day-to-day -day basis. There have been five mass extinctions in the history of life on Earth. Uh, the one that everybody talks about is, of course, the extinction of the dinosaurs and much of the other biota of the Earth at that same time. It wasn't just the dinosaurs. And we are currently in a mass extinction event that is geologically happening far faster than any of the previous extinction events. And we are losing species at a pace right now and we have lost species that we never even identified for the past you know, 100 years or so, such that a million years from now, when people look back at the fossil record, the decrease in biodiversity on the planet will be bigger during the Anthropocene, the time period that we're living in now, through whenever humans stop being the dominant effect on the, uh, the surface of the planet it will be a more striking extinction event than the extinction of the dinosaurs. You know, according to the, uh, the UN, we may lose a million species in the next couple of decades. That may be a conservative estimate because we don't actually know how many species there are. The estimates range from 10 million to 20 million to as many as 50 million. If we lose a million of the 10 million that they were basing their assumption on, that's 10% in the course of our lifetimes. I think there's a sort of an aesthetic and moral component to biodiversity and protecting biodiversity. We should care about the planet and we shouldn't think it's okay to cause rhinoceros to go extinct. But there's also the ecosystem services component where we don't actually know the impact that we're having by causing species to go extinct. We don't know if when something goes extinct that causes an ecosystem to collapse and then we lose the services from that ecosystem, whether it's the food value or the prevention of flooding value or recreational value. We don't really know 
as we cause a million species to go extinct in our lifetimes, what impact that's going to have on our lifestyle and on the economy of the people of the you know the countries and the planet. How does mapping help us uh, understand where to invest to try to prevent further extinctions? So mapping is really the key to this whole thing. If you don't know where they are, and if you don't know what they are, then you can't save them. NatureServe was one of the early adopters of uh, GIS. We had all of this spatially explicit data because you need to know where species are so that you can create the park or do the development in such a way to protect them. So the, the mapping of biodiversity is the key to saving biodiversity and coexisting with it. So is the level of mapping today sufficient to support the environmental review process that, that must exist for endangered species and other development decisions? We're at an amazing hinge point or inflection point in the scale of data that are available. We are able, in this recent project that we did on, the, on mapping biodiversity importance in the United States, to get down to 30-meter resolution in most of the predictor layers. That's unprecedented in the history of doing modeling across the United States. But there's also shoebox satellites in space right now that are taking photographs at meter resolution across the planet. So there will be finer scale data available, and for certain species that will be important. But 30 meter resolution, the resolution we're working at right now, is really quite good when you're talking about large scale protection, putting conservation easements on pieces of land or putting out parks. Can you give us an example or help us understand how location analytics, location intelligence are helping you communicate with decision makers? So we use this location intelligence to help make better decisions. And when we combine all of that together, we think of conservation intelligence and taking all of the different sources of data in a spatially explicit way to make the best decisions for conservation. And really the easiest way to do that is with a map. With the modeling work that we're doing, we're able to eliminate entire pieces of geography from the possible habitat for a species. And so if someone's wanting to cite something in an area, we can say with great certainty, even without putting boots on the ground, that certain species aren't going to be there. And that, that saves a ton of money, it saves a ton of time, it's a much more efficient process. NatureServe actively wants to work with organizations, companies that are building things to help them protect the biodiversity in the places where they're working. Because we're going to build highways and we're going to build pipelines and we're going to build airports no matter what. So let's put them in the right place. And NatureServe wants to help people figure out where the right place is with the least amount of expense to them. And so having these models at this scale really allows us to do that in a very effective way. We've done some looking at the Carner's Blue Butterfly in New York State in particular, and the county-level range maps for it suggest that anybody who's putting pesticides on orchards in these counties is going to have to look out to not affect this butterfly. But when you model the distribution of where that butterfly is, it can only exist in about 10% of the county. So the orchards in the other 90% of the county don't have that concern. We've just reduced conflict, and all of a sudden people who might be concerned about their property rights or their ability to do what they want on their land has been alleviated for 90% of the people. 
Is it fair to say that these species-specific models are training an artificial intelligence-powered spatial model to continually improve the intelligence of this map that you're building? Absolutely. The ability to create the model and then ground truth the model and then add new predictors into the model will continuously make it better. And through machine learning, each model should help the next model be better. And one of the things that's so exciting is we have all of this data collected by scientists that we have plugged in to create these models. One of the ways we're ground-truthing them is with citizen science. So people are out there with their phones using things like eBird and iNaturalist and other, as we like to call people, sensors of biodiversity are out there collecting data. And so we can engage the public in saying, okay, here's a map of where we think this species exists. We know for a fact that it's in these parts, but here's other places where we think it might exist, but we haven't yet seen it there. And we could ask the public to go out and see if they find that species in those locations, which is really exciting. You have to be careful with very, very endangered species when you do that. But there's a lot of species that you could send out people to look for them. And that's a great way to engage people in citizen science and schools looking for things that they might otherwise never be able to see, but also then training the model. Because we can then go and say, actually, the model had a false positive or the model was right and the scientists didn't know it. One of the things that's most impressive to me about the NatureServe network is the degree of trust across this partnership. How do you maintain that trust and strengthen that collaboration with your partners? We've been working together as a network for 40 years. And of course, there have been little bumps along the way with specific programs. But overall, the network trusts NatureServe to respect their data and the restrictions and requirements they have associated with their data. And we trust them to give us the right data and accurate data. It really comes back to communication and that has just gotten easier over time. When you think about the challenges our planet is facing and the data you're providing to help advise on better decision-making, what are the specific actions that you hope will, will come out of that effort? What we are trying to do is to help protect species from going extinct by protecting locations. So we are trying to influence land-use decision-makers in making good decisions about whether it's protecting land or using land. All of our data and all of the analyses that we are doing are to educate land use decision makers. Of course, there's other issues, energy use and climate change and fossil fuels and things that are a, a little bit different from that. But if you're talking about protecting biodiversity, a lot of this has to come back to land use, even with, say, climate change. So a species exists here now. We can model where the climate is going to be okay for that species in the future. And so we can make decisions today about places we might want to protect so that we can protect that species in the future. Uh, one of our scientists has done an analysis of redwoods and where they exist now and where they will likely exist in the future because of climate change. And that's a roadmap for what to do in terms of protecting land to protect redwoods. How do you defend your scientific approach to avoid a perception that this NGO has all of the answers? How do you make it inclusive and defensible? NatureServe works very hard to be as transparent as we can, and we publish our methods. We recently published a paper in Bioscience 
which outlines a rubric for species distribution modeling or habitat suitability modeling. And we're measuring the models that we created for the map of biodiversity importance against this peer-reviewed published article about how to assess habitat suitability models. So everyone will be able to know the method that we followed and people can use that rubric to assess other models. Our audience includes many leaders in the private sector. Uh, what, what can businesses do and what actions would you suggest businesses take to better preserve biodiversity? The most important thing that businesses can do to protect biodiversity is to actually reach out to organizations like NatureServe early in their planning process for projects that they're going to do to see if there's a biodiversity concern. Many things are easily solved with a quick screen against the data to see if there's an issue. Um, we work very closely with a number of industries that you would be surprised that environmental groups work with, the pesticide industry, the energy sector, because they have recognized that they can be more efficient and more effective by engaging us early and often. As you mentioned, discussions around environmental protection and biodiversity have become very polarized. How do you think that we might work past that as a, as a society? One of the things that's so great about maps and the high resolution data that we have is that you can zoom into someone's home. So we had a congressman come to our office recently and his district is extremely urbanized, but we were able to identify um, endangered species that live in his district. And so we were able to make a map of his congressional district and say, did you realize, despite the fact that you are representing one of the most urbanized districts in America, that there are endangered species living in your district. Right? So when you can personalize by going down to the scale where people can see like their house and the fact that there might be endangered species living near them, you can have a huge impact. Right? That, that personal touch is the key to action. It goes back to the think globally, act locally. Well, if you think locally, as Jane Goodall said, then you can act globally. Sean, thank you for uh, joining us today. It was great to be here. It's really fun to engage in these kinds of conversations, and it forces me to think a little bit differently about nature serve. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast, and thanks to Sean O'Brien for explaining how NatureServe helps corporations and governments make informed decisions about managing our natural resources. To learn more, download our free ebook, The Science of Wear Discover the Value of Location Intelligence Technology, at go.esri.com forward slash location intelligence.